Thank you so much, Bridget. Uh, it's always an honor and a privilege. My name's Jeff. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm grateful to AA for being sober today. I, I wanted to start off by just saying uh, what a great AA day I had. We used to, in, in, in Los Angeles, uh, when I talked to a sponsor, I talked to some friends, did you have an AA day? And an AA day means when uh, everything goes right and you don't drink, number one, and that you uh, enjoy the day with fellowship. Uh, one could be at work or one could be at play. And uh, today I definitely was at play. I, uh, I did something I've never done before and that was jet ski. And it was uh, pretty awesome. And the only reason I was jet skiing today is because uh, I've, I made a friend who I actually sponsored for, um, uh, for about a year and a half. Uh, he got up to the ninth step and then he balked. And so I fired him and we're still good friends today. And he's still doing the ninth step and uh, uh, that's okay. He's on his path, I'm on my path. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, you, you, you can never be too high a bottom or too low a bottom uh, to join AA. Um, when I was jet skiing today, I was, I was thinking about uh, how I used to walk along uh, Wilshire Boulevard or Pico Boulevard, and my head was down most of the time because I was looking for red cents. If I could find 62 cents, then I could get myself a Schlitz malt liquor and I could drink it real fast and it would take the edge off for maybe 10, 15 minutes. Uh, I really believe that I didn't die of alcoholism because I just never had enough money to drink myself to death. I did black out on many, many occasions, but uh, finding, finding uh, money to, to, uh, to drink alcohol was always paramount on my, on my mind. And uh, some days I didn't eat because I was having a liquid diet. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't homeless, but uh, I lived in a one-room apartment. Uh, this was back in the, in the um, early 80s. And I had a Mr. Coffee. And then it also doubled as a tortilla maker, tortilla and cheese maker. And uh, so today I'm uh, jet skiing with, with a friend of mine who came into the program with three houses and uh, a lot of toys, you know, jet skis, boats, cars. And, uh, you know, he, he's got the problem of losing it all. I never had that problem. Um, so I'm going to share uh, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And when I share, I always start off with this line in the big book because it really um, describes my, how alcoholism affected my life. Alcohol gave me wings to fly and then alcohol took away the sky. Um, I believe that I was actually born an alcoholic waiting for the first drink. I had all the isms prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous prior to taking my first drink. This is just my opinion, it might differ from yours, but uh, I, all, I when I grew up, I, I, I had a story uh, for myself. And the story went that uh, 
I wasn't good enough and that I never would be good enough. And uh, everybody knew that I wasn't good enough. And uh, that was uh, kind of a strange story to have because uh, I, uh, my parents were loving. Uh, they gave me uh, pretty much everything that I wanted when I was a kid. Um, but they were extremely uh, harsh disciplinarians. And um, especially my mother. Um, when I'd come home from a test and I got 95 on the test, my father would say, that's not bad, Jeff. And uh, he had a little poem that went, uh, good, better, best, never shall I rest till my good is better and my better best. So achievement was paramount in our family. My father had gone to Harvard. He got an MBA. It was quite a big deal to, to come from uh, South Africa, where I was born in 1962. And uh, um, so he was, when he came back to South Africa, he was a, a, a really big fish in a small sea. And uh, we lived in a, in a beautiful house in uh, Johannesburg, five bedroom house, tennis court, swimming pool, orchards. And, uh, but, but nevertheless, you know, the outsides were great, but uh, inside uh, I learned, I learned two things or the, the main thing I learned when I was young is fear. The emotion of fear was bred into me early. It was, it came from my parents uh, especially again, I'm going to mention my mother because uh, when I came to America when I was 15 years old and I turned on the TV one day in the afternoon and Phil Donahue had an episode about child abuse, I said, that's my story. That's exactly what happened to me. And uh, it, uh, it, was, uh, it was hell, you know, it was hell growing up uh, um, in so much fear. I remember one day, uh, my mother bought me a jacket and it cost 12 bucks. <laughs> and she, she looked at me in the eye and she goes, if you lose this jacket, I'll kill you. And uh, one day I lost this jacket and uh, I was running around telling everybody I'm going to die. I'm going to die. My mother's going to kill me. Um, my, my, uh, my mother was the, the, the person who wore the pants in the family. Uh, it got so bad that towards the end of my father's life, he actually called my mother mommy. So that made me, I guess, his brother. I don't know. But uh, so, you know, I had a hard childhood in South Africa. Sure. But compared to black South Africans, I was, you know, I had the best childhood in the world because uh, there was such extreme poverty in our country. And uh I was not only uh, not only did I fear my 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 parents, especially my mother, but I also feared black people because that's what we were taught. We we're taught that in school. I was taught that by my parents, and I uh, was brought up racist. I was brought up homophobic, and I really loved the uh, the um, the saying of this meeting because I mention it all the time. Love and tolerance of others is our code. That's one thing that Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me. 
One of the greatest things Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me besides not drinking one day at a time. So uh, when I was in South Africa, um, when I was a little kid, I felt I found it kind of strange, like at five years old, I had to, we went on vacation and we had a, we had a, a maid that came with us on vacation and uh, uh, she uh, and uh, she took me inside the toilet when she went to the toilet because she she didn't want to lose me. I mean, she would have lost her job, and and that just seemed like strange. Um, one one Christmas morning, uh, some guy knocked on the front door and he had a knife in his head. There was so much violence. Uh, not 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 uh, it, the violence. Uh, came from my mother and father, but but in society growing up, and that had a major impact on me. Um, okay, one other story about my mother. My mother, we had a big house, as I just said, and everything was locked up because of security. Uh, the you know all, all all the cupboards and everything, and she had this big big um, bunch of keys on a ring. And one day, I guess I. I pissed her off. I don't know what I did. I must have been about 11 or 12. And I was walking away and she threw the keys at me and they lacerated the back of my leg and it got infected. And uh, that was one of the only times that I saw my father really get upset with my mother, uh, who basically was borderline, uh, uh, which we found out later. But, you know, I used to think to myself when that happened, I was thinking to myself, if I lose my leg, then my mother will treat me right. You know, well, fortunately, I, you know, I'm, I don't I didn't. But uh, uh, it, it came to that. And uh, the last experience that I'm going to share about South Africa was uh, when, uh, when I was about 12, 12 years old, we went to a school play. And we came back at about 10 o'clock at night and uh, we had this enormous big uh, white wall around our house and it actually had uh, glass put like actually set into the cement on the top so people couldn't climb over. But the gate was slightly ajar. And when we got to the front door, we had, we had to walk like about, I don't know, 50 yards to get to the front of our, of our house. The front door was wide open and this French uh, the French windows were knocked out and these two guys ran out the house and uh, I froze for like about a minute and my father picked up a chair and um, and then I ran I ran to our neighbor's house and uh, uh, and and thank goodness the guys ran away as well. One of them was carrying about 10 of my father's suits over his shoulder. I remember seeing that and he had a Swiss clock in his hand that my father had gotten on a business trip to Zurich. And, and I remember how, you know, they weren't uh, older than probably 19 or 20, but uh, um, you know, a lot, a lot of stories have ended real badly with violence and people getting, uh, getting shot or getting stabbed. Um, just, I just digress. My, my aunt, uh, was bringing her, her four kids home one evening and there were guys waiting for her in the garage. And when she opened up the garage, they ordered her out of the car and the kids out of the car. And as they were leaving, they shot her dead. Uh, so, uh, the, 
the, uh, the, the silver lining of that story is my, uh, my uncle had uh, four, four kids and he met a, a woman in South Africa who had four kids, who was a widow. And so it was like front page news, you know, they got together, eight is enough. They had a, they had a family, but uh, so, you know, I, I ran and uh, um, to the neighbor's house and the police came and, and everything was okay. But for a long time after that, I felt so ashamed because I did not stay with my mother, my father, and I've also got a sister. She's about, uh, well, she's exactly 18 months younger than me. And uh, um, so, uh, so that was that. And then when we left South Africa in uh, 2000, uh, sorry, not 2000, in uh, 1977, uh, it was like I'd been living in black and white and then I came into color. I mean, America was just the freedom that people have here is uh, is taken for granted my personal opinion and uh, it took me a while to realize that i'd been brought up in a fascist state and uh, um when i went to college and i found uh, south africans uh who who were studying there black south africans they taught me more about my country than when i lived in south africa so um when I came to America, it took me about six months and I had my, my, my first like full beer. Uh, I remember getting drunk, uh, you know, uh, if it wasn't the first time, it was definitely a very, very soon after. And I loved the taste of alcohol and I loved the effect of alcohol. And, and, and for the next, uh, so I was 15 years old and for the next 10 years, I was basically a walking chemical. Um, I, I, I remember being on the tennis team and uh, we came home from, we had moved to Beverly Hills and my sister and I, I was 15, she was 14. We shared, we shared a room and uh, it, was, it was like, uh, it was unbelievable really to go to, to go to such a school coming from South Africa, but uh, my saving grace was tennis. And I used to have on my big, on my book bag, uh, tennis isn't a matter of life and death. It's much more important than that. And one day coming back from a tennis, tennis match, somebody lit up a joint and uh, I, you know, people pleaser, I smoked it. And uh, that was uh, my, my next uh, favorite drug. Um, and smoked a lot of weed in the next 10 years. It was interesting because my parents had warned my sister and I, you know, we go to America and there are drugs in America and you're not allowed to do drugs. And if you do drugs, we're sending you back to South Africa and you're going to go to the army. And the last thing I want to do is go to the army because, I mean, every year in training, people die. They push them, the whites, so hard uh, uh, to, you know, to, to become a fighting force against the, the black majority. Um, so I had to really uh, hide my drinking, hide my smoking, and, and I did it quite well during high school. Um, I then got into college and uh, 
I was, I, be, I it was quite an introvert. I had a very bad experience with uh, PCP one day. Uh, the next six months of my life, I was uh, touching walls to make sure they were there. Uh, I would, I, yeah, I would like prick myself with a, with a, with a needle or a pin because I couldn't feel. And, uh, and the most bizarre thing was that I had to constantly check that the date was the same. So this was before the internet. So I'd have to run from different uh, stores to go and look at newspapers to go and check that the date was the same on the, you know, on the newspaper. Um, and, and, and I ended up going to get some psychiatric help from a Harvard trained psychiatrist who gave me Valium which was uh, my new drug that I drank, uh, you know, a Valium and three Heinekens and I, I was off to the races. I really enjoyed that. He also told me that I was uh, too introverted and that I should join a fraternity. And so that's the next thing I did. And there, there I majored in drinking and using. Um, uh, real quick here, okay. So I dropped out of UCLA with a 3.5 grade point average because my, uh, because of the PCP experience, I thought I'd, you know, lost my ability to memorize and I, and, and I handed in a blank test one day. So I got help and then I moved to USC and I, and, uh, I graduated from USC uh, with an undergrad in business. But uh, I, you know, I didn't grow from the, from the age of 15 to 25, like most people do. I didn't have good relationships with anybody now that I, now that I look back at it. And, uh, um, and relationships with women were based on drinking uh, most of the time. Uh, that was the criteria, you know, if we went on a date, we would do some pre-parting before we went, we went out. Just I wanted to see whether you could drink the way that I drank. And, um, I took hostages as well, you know, meet somebody at a bar and then ask them to move in with me for the next three months. Um, uh, so on the day of graduation, I had a, had a, had a, a very novel experience, I guess. Uh, I graduated uh, from USC and I got a job and, 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 you know, my mind at that time was uh, you're getting you're getting a job for twenty thousand dollars. This was back in nineteen um, eighty five, and I just looked at it as drugs and alcohol. How much drugs and alcohol can I buy for twenty grand? So I was so excited that I got this job with this company called the May Company in retail, as an as a men's suits and shoes manager. And on graduate, and so. Um, I had trouble sleeping and uh, probably before graduation, I didn't sleep for three weeks, probably not more than a couple uh, hours a night. And on that day, uh, I was pretty psychotic and I saw the South African flag at, our, at, our, uh, uh, at the campus because they had all the flags from all the students that had come from all over the world to USC. And I decided to burn the South African flag right then and there. And I ended up in the campus jail. Uh, and uh, they said, you can either go to jail or you can go to hospital. So I said, I'll go to hospital. And, 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 and then I found out that, uh, that uh, 
I was manic depressive. I have, uh, which is uh, known today as bipolar. They talk about it in the big book, a whole chapter can be written about it. And, uh, um, and so at least I, I kind of realized what was going on. And, and I had used drugs and alcohol to medicate myself. And, and uh, so then uh, um, my drinking and using got so bad. At one point, you know, I was uh, a tennis coach at this uh, private country club in Los Angeles and I was playing this guy and I was supposed to beat him, but I knew that the that the 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 country club bar was going to be closing, so I lost just to go to the bar. And I remember that day like it was yesterday because I just you know, it's like alcohol had uh, had power over me. Alcohol was I was a slave to alcohol. Um. So I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. My parents took me. My mother actually took me, and uh, uh, it and uh, I thought my life was over. I really thought that the party was over. That uh, this this was going to be the worst thing that ever happened in my life. And uh, you know, I got a big book. I went home. Uh, I uh, my big book's got uh, rings around it because I used to drink beers and read the big book, and uh, didn't work out too well that way. Um, I initially got. Uh, 11 months in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did it like as if it was a course at, at, uh, at college, you know, study the big book, um, read articles uh, about alcoholism, uh, memorize uh, passages in the big book, but I didn't work the steps. I was a two-stepper. I did the first part of the first step and I did the 12th step. I could tell everybody how they could stay sober, but I hadn't worked the steps. I hadn't changed. And uh, at 11 months sober, I knew that I was a total fraud. And, I, and somebody asked me, do, do you want to go up to this free concert in San Francisco at the Golden Gate uh, Park with Santana? And there was also a South African band playing there. So I jumped to the chance, you know, take a trip, not take a trip. And uh, this guy just offered me a joint at the show and I just put it in my pocket. And on the way driving home with this other guy, I looked in my pocket and there was a joint and I smoked it. And the next morning I was buying weed and I pretty much smoked weed the next three years until 1987. Um, June 1 of 1987 is my sobriety date. Uh, I really thought that I could uh, that I could stop drinking and that my life would be manageable and that weed wasn't a problem. Well, the when I stopped drinking, the delirium tremens were terrible. I mean, I was scratching my arms. There were invisible insects, uh, dry heaving, and uh, just total confusion, total physical incomprehensible demoralization. When I stopped smoking weed, it was very hard psychologically. I just didn't know how I was going to be able to do it, but I managed to put some time. I also had to make sure that I was nowhere anywhere around weed. I, had, I couldn't go to concerts for a while. 
Um, I remember when I even stopped drinking, I couldn't watch the World Series because they had so many ads for beer and I and it was and they just would, I guess the word now is called trigger, but they would just upset then it just upset the shit out of me and I would just uh, turn off the TV or get angry. So um, so I came back into Alcoholics Anonymous um, after looking, you know, looking for weed on the carpet and uh, probably the most, I don't know if it's egregious, but bizarre thing I ever did was uh, boil bong water uh, to try and get high one day. So when I came back, I was completely uh, defeated and uh, I, was, I was willing to go to any lengths. So, uh, I, you know, I got a sponsor. I started going to the West Side Olano Club and, um, and I became a, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and my life started to change. When I had six months of sobriety, I did something that was so detrimental to my life. I stopped taking my meds because I heard at the West Side Alano Club, there were guys who used to share that if you take anything from the neck up, that's either an aspirin or, a or stronger than an aspirin or a Tylenol, you're not sober. So in my mind, I was like, you know what? I'm not manic depressive. I'm just a garden variety alcoholic. Well, unfortunately, six months later, I found myself in St. John's Hospital St. John's Hospitals, where another Taylor went, Elizabeth Taylor. My name's Jeff Taylor. And I found myself on the third floor with the elevator locked. And I really thought that my life was over at that point because I was sober. Now, this is how bizarre this, this went down. Um, when... Uh, when I got to the hospital, I, I, you know, I was very anxious, very irritated, and I, and I met a psychiatrist who just informed me that he's got 12 years of sobriety, and that was a long time to me, you know, because I didn't have, I had six months, and he said, Jeff, I don't believe that you're clean and sober, so they took a blood test, they did a urine test, and I was, and I was sober, I was cold stone sober. And then they said, uh, so you have to go back on your medicine. And I, I put up a fight and, you know, the two big guys with the white coats and came and put, were holding me down. And, and I said, I'm not taking any medicine. I'm not taking any medicine. And then this woman who just happened to be a nurse at that hospital, who also happened to go to the West Side Alana Club, she said, she like came up to me and she whispered in my ear and she said, Jeff, Bill W says it's okay. And I took the meds, you know, and uh, it's been 34 years and I probably haven't missed my medication more than five times in that 34 years. So uh, I'm very, I'm very glad for science and for doctors that have uh, been able to find uh, medication that, that allows people with my illness to, um, to live a life, to live a life that uh, that's meaningful and that uh, doesn't have to, that, that where the elevators are, are you know are open, where I can I'm free, I don't have to I don't have to be uh, enslaved in, in in some mental hospital. And I and I share that whenever I can, whenever I hear people say, 
there was this guy in our home group. Uh, he's got 40 years of sobriety. He's an old guy. So I think he's about 83 now. And one night in a meeting, he just was ornery and he just goes, I think that bipolar is a cop out. And I just had to, you know, share my, my story. And uh, um, to that own self be true. That's what I tell everyone. So, uh, you know, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I, ma I managed to uh, be a worker among workers. I got a good job working for a bank. They say, if you can find something that you like doing in between meetings, you're gonna have a good life. And uh, I certainly did. I, I, I really enjoyed my, my job uh, uh, selling uh, used equipment that came off lease from, yeah, um, from businesses that unfortunately couldn't pay for them anymore. And uh, there's, a, there's a massive uh, used market for, for anything. And uh, um, I had some phenomenal experiences. Uh, one, one I'll, I'll just tell this story. Uh, one day, um, we had we had leased the equipment for this uh, this TV show. I think it's called uh, nine 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 one two oh nine something in Beverly Hills. It was a TV show, and they had a um, a gym. The gym was like. Uh, at the time, I don't know, $300,000 worth of equipment. And at the end of the lease, they're supposed to buy out the equipment for $30,000 and or either give it back to us or negotiate. So I call up one of these vice presidents. Uh, it was, took me a long time to get a hold of a vice president at Paramount. And I finally got a hold of him. And I start speaking to him and he goes, uh, Mr. Taylor, I have to put you on hold. And I said, and I was just like fuming. I've just got him on the line. And he didn't put the phone down and he, and, uh, he didn't cut me off. He just took, I guess, another phone. I don't know how they did it back then. But I heard him sharing to this guy, you know, there's a meeting at Roxbury in Beverly Hills at eight o'clock and you gotta be there. And being and having brought up in Beverly Hills, I knew Roxbury's meeting. And I said to him when he came back to the phone, you know, uh, I'm also a friend of Bill W and he apologized why he hadn't gotten back to me. And it was just, uh, just an amazing experience. And uh, um, another time I was uh, negotiating with a lawyer and, uh, he 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 didn't he didn't come through with with what I'd asked him to and then I and, and I was kind of shocked and I said why didn't you do that and he goes you want to know the real story Jeff my son's bipolar and he's out there drinking and using and I totally forgot about anonymity and I talked to him for the next hour about the disease of alcoholism about being bipolar um you know uh let me look at the time here. Um, I've, I've, I've been given so much uh, by Alcoholics Anonymous. My, my life, uh, as I said before, you know, I've had a good job. Uh, I had a marriage for 30 years. I'm, I'm in the process of getting divorced. The last two years we've lived as roommates and uh, we've, been, we've gone in completely different ways, uh, unfortunately. But we also have uh, two wonderful daughters, and uh, they're my they're my greatest teachers. Uh, they never they've never they never saw me drink, 
and uh, they supported me going to Alcoholics Anonymous and missing some, you know, many events where I said, no, I've got to go to my meeting. I've got to go. You know, they say that, that in, in AA, uh, the two ways you can get sober. The, some people say meeting makers make it. And other people say it's not the meetings I make, but the steps I take. And I think it's a bit, it's, it's, it's a little of both. I mean, uh, I really enjoy going to meetings. I love the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. But to have a psychic change, to be able to uh, react in a different way than I used to, uh, the, the steps have been crucial in my life. Uh, I'll never forget the day I finished my, my uh, fourth, do it, I did the fourth step when I read my fifth step to my sponsor. That, was, that day was uh, really profound because I really I felt I was part of the human race again. I did not have the secrets that I'd kept for years and years. And, you know, there were nights when I said, uh, oh, what happened last night's going to the grave. And uh, it didn't have to. Um, doing the ninth step was also humbling. And, uh, you know, like with my mother, the best that I could do was make a living amends. And uh, she gave me 10 cakes in a row at meetings which was pretty phenomenal. And she was my biggest supporter. Um, and then I'm just gonna fast forward to, I'm 27 years of, uh, of uh, 27 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I'm at the computer one day and I read an article called, Why Doesn't God Help Amputees? And I, you know, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I, I steered away from, from religion. Um, I, I then went back to religion. But on that day, I, when, once I read that article, I suddenly, I said out loud, there is no God. And I did not know how I'd be able to navigate in Alcoholics Anonymous any longer because um, I had, I had had my own God, my own higher power. You know, I used to think I was bulletproof as long as I had two things in my life, my God and my job. Well, I got laid off three times in 2007, eight and nine and, uh, and then stopped working. I just, uh, you know, I lived frugally and, and haven't worked since 2009. Um, but that day, uh, when I said that, uh, the next day I went to Vaughn's and uh, there was this guy, Jerry, there. And I, and I went up to him and I was kind of in a state of anxiety. And I said, Jerry, what am I going to do? I don't have a God anymore. And I don't believe in God. And he said, uh, no big deal. G-O-D, group of drunks. And uh, I'd heard that before, but I never heard it in the context of uh, making that a power. I just believed that, you know, the, the group of drunks is what Alcoholics Anonymous is. And I don't, I don't even know to this day if, if, if that's my higher power. I don't have a higher power. I'm an atheist. But I, I love the word group of drunks, uh, the, the acronym that it stands for. And uh, since being in, in, in We Agnostic Atheist Alcoholics Anonymous, 
I've learned many others, which uh, some are uh, gift of desperation. Another one is uh, grow or die and uh, good orderly direction. And just in Zoom, I found, I, I heard one which really I, I, I enjoy the most. I, I, I just think it's wonderful. And that is gift of dialogue. Because I know a lot of people in uh, uh, secular AA have, a, have an aversion to the word God. And, uh, and I don't anymore. I really don't. Because I just look at it as an acronym. And gift of dialogue explains exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. It started with two people, Bill and Bob, speaking with each other about alcoholism. And uh, that's what we that's what we do in meetings. Um, I have been this that was 2014. 2014 was uh, such an interesting year for me because uh, uh, the the pamphlet came out, many paths to spirituality, and I'm actually leading a meeting at uh, 10 at 10:30 this evening on a on a, on a regular platform. It's a it's a it's a 24-hour meeting, 24-hour-a-day meeting, and um, they actually do say the they say a prayer before, before when the meeting starts. Some people end with the Lord's prayer, uh, but that doesn't happen in my meeting. In my meeting, I end with the responsibility statement, and uh, there are over 130 people that come to that meeting all the time, and they. They loved me as an atheist, you know, they, I've brought atheist speakers and uh, um, there's only been one time that a gentleman with 41 years uh, who was a believer chastised the, the speaker that night, uh, who, by the way, also had 41 years. And then, so this guy said his, his little piece. And then at the end of the meeting, there was a couple minutes left and he wanted to speak again. And I asked him to, um, and he apologized. You know, he said that was his old thinking that uh, you had to have a God, that you, that you had to do it the way of the big book. Um, and uh, and that, was, that was pretty uh, enlightening and a, and a great moment. Uh, obviously in, in the South, there still is, uh, uh, you know, a lot of pushback to uh, we agnostic, atheist, secular, alcoholics, anonymous. Um, I think I'm going to end with a couple things. One is, uh, I don't, you know, whenever I think of drinking, I've been able to train myself to think of a triangle. It's just the 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 picture of a triangle because uh, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about: service, recovery, and unity. And uh, it goes even further than that because in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I don't know whether it was in their wisdom or or how it worked out that way, but in my you know I was in in regular AA for twenty seven years and. Uh, Things that are written in the book and are um, explained in threes. And I'm just going to go through a couple. You know, they say when you, when you join Alcoholics Anonymous, 
get three things, get a sober date, a home group and a sponsor. And if one does not stay sober and one is a real alcoholic, then your, the options for most people are jails, institutions or death. You know, when, I'm in a, when I was in a state of, uh, of my addiction and, and actually just because I'm an alcoholic, I can be in a state of three things, restlessness, irritability and discontent. And right now, what I'm doing is hopefully sharing three things, my experience, my strength, and my hope. They say in AA that you need to just have three things when you, when you first come into the meetings, when you first join, and that is how honesty, honesty open-mindedness, and willingness. And uh, I think it's kind of ironic, you know, they say that that people who are alcoholics are, are, you know, gutter drunks, people that are homeless. Well, the first three alcoholics, Bill was a stockbroker, Dr. Bob was a doctor, and, and the th number three was Bill D, he, he was a lawyer. So, you, you know, you can only be too smart for Alcoholics Anonymous, never too dumb. Uh, the, uh, the ism, the ism of alcoholism for me is definitely means incredible short memory. Um, I'll just uh, share a real quick story. I, I went on a bucket list to Denver a couple of weeks ago, and I went to, uh, to see this band that uh, called the String Cheese Incident uh, three nights in a row. And we have a, a sober group that meet there a place that people can be safe among drugs and alcohol called uh, the jellyfish. And uh, I, was, um, I was alone for a minute and these two guys came down with this bucket just full of alcohol and they were handing it out free. And the one guy said, we've got some real good tequila and uh, I used to love tequila. Tequila was, was one of my margaritas and tequila. And for a nanosecond, my brain said, you know, I, I probably could have some tequila. But, you know, then the program kicks in. I think of the triangle and I think that I'm there to help other people who are at their first show who've never, you know, I've gone to so many, uh, they call them sober shows, one show at a time. Don't drink in between shows. Don't drink, don't drink in between shows and don't drink at shows and you'll have a good life. Um, and, uh, so just to finish up on the threes, obviously the word God has got three letters, G O D and, uh, and then you get the slogans, uh, first things first, easy does it and live and well live and let live doesn't have three, but, uh, um, those three slogans have really helped me to boil down the program and uh, to keep it as simple as possible. So first things first, when I wake up, the first thing I've got to remember that I'm an alcoholic, that I cannot drink alcohol. The first drink will get me drunk. One's too many and a thousand's not enough. And then the first thing for this alcoholic is to take his medicine on a daily basis. And to remember the first step, 
You know, the first step in the big book is not in the steps. It's in the more about alcoholism, which says we learn to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. I've conceded on a cellular level that I cannot drink alcohol. And then, um, so live and let live is hard. Live and let live has taken me years to uh, get better at, to, uh, to change, to remember that I've got to live my life and enjoy my life and to let others live their life and not to control them. And right now, I've, there, there are members of my family that I've just got to love from afar. I can't do anything else about it. The circumstances are beyond my control. And uh, easy does it is, uh, you know, when I was out there drinking and, and using and, uh, and to a certain extent, uh, even in sobriety, I, I rush things. I'm not relaxed. But when I focus on easy does it, things go better, things go smoother. Uh, my, my, my wife, soon to be my ex-wife, uh, used to have a little slogan. She's from Thailand and it goes, life is short, so move slow. And, um, you know, Easy Does It also talks about enjoying the moment, to, about living in the now. Uh, when I was drinking and using, I lived constantly in guilt of the past and fear of the future. And most of the time, I'm living in the now. I certainly was in the now when I was on those jet skis today. It was uh, quite an quite a exhilarating experience. And uh, um, I'm going to, you know... So many things have happened. Uh, probably religious people would say that they were divine providence or that I'm blessed. I just think I've just been a very lucky person. I was, I was in the right time at the right place. Obviously, I don't think I, I think I have, a, I, was, I have a lot of bad luck because I, I, you know, I, I have the disease of bipolar, which is uh, very debilitating at times. But I'll tell you, um, a, a, a day that changed my life, the, the complete like, trajectory of my life, because I, I was living in Los Angeles, and I was working for this company called the Emergency Road Service on uh, 14th Street. And opposite where we worked was a, a cemetery. So every day I'd walk past and I'd go, well, I'm glad I'm not on that side of the street. And I worked like in a dungeon. We, we, we were kind of like a AAA office, but uh, mostly for motorhomes. And we would, uh, we would try and help people on a daily basis if their motorhome got broken, stuck. And I walked in, uh, and I, and I worked in, a, in, in like a, a pretty small room and everybody smoked and I had stopped smoking and there was no windows and there was bad ventilation. And I wanted to quit that job, but I didn't. And then one day, my boss, uh, you know, it's a 24-hour operation and he needed somebody for Saturday noon. And I said, and he said, Jeff, I need you to cover tomorrow for somebody. And I said, uh, I said, Tom, I can't. And, and, he, and he looked at me and he said, you know, you're never going to get far in life. 
I was at the time, you know, I was like 26, 27. I said, you're never going to uh, go up the corporate ladder if you don't do, if you don't sacrifice for the company. And he asked me a question. He said, what's more important than your job right now in your life? And I showed him my chips and I shook them. And I said, I'm, a, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous and I've got the literature commitment at noon tomorrow and I cannot work. And he looked at me and he shook his head and he walked into his office and, and then he turned around and he said, Jeff, come into my office. And we spoke for 45 minutes and I took him to his first meeting of AA that night. And a couple months later, the company moved from, from that little office on, in Santa Monica to Thousand Oaks. And he asked me to, to, to move. And uh, um, I'd never, I didn't, Thousand Oaks could have been the moon for me because it was so far away. But because of him, I, I, I made the move away from my parents, away from my family. And, uh, you know, that's, I met my wife in Thousand Oaks. Um, so the gifts of just being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous have been numerous for me. And, uh, I, I used to go to meetings at, uh, in very early AA, uh, at the Pacific group in Brentwood. And there was this car that used to, I don't know who owned it, but there was this car and it had a number plate on it and it only had four letters. I O A A. And that's pretty much sums up my life. Most spiritual thing I'll ever do is not take the first drink. Thanks for allowing me to share this evening. <laughs>